When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Again, uh, he wasn't questioning the Secretary of State's intelligence. He made he, he made a joke. Maybe you guys should uh, get a sense of humor and try it sometime. We do know he had the courage to call this guy out as a moron. No, I didn't undercut anybody. I don't believe in undercutting people. Who is going to do that job after Tillerson leaves except some nut? Those who express outrage at one sexual harasser and not another because of the first harasser's political views, that is morally bankrupt. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the Harvey Weinstein type who still has his job, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I hope you've been enjoying Morongate as much as I have. To recap, a week ago, NBC News reported that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson used that term, prefaced by fucking, to describe the president. He said it at a meeting at the Pentagon back in July after Trump made a fool out of himself at that Boy Scout jamboree. Trump went bananas over the story, and then even bananas-er when Tillerson declined to deny saying it. And Trump's been on the warpath ever since against NBC and Tillerson. To NBC, he's been tweeting about fake news and even warning about the network's FCC license. With all of the fake news coming out of NBC and the networks, at what point is it appropriate to challenge their license? Bad for the country. As for Tillerson, he's been undermining him in every possible way, calling his Secretary of State's efforts to avoid conflict with North Korea a waste of time. I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful Secretary of State, that he was wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man. Save your energy, Rex. We'll do what has to be done. In an interview with Forbes published yesterday, Trump said, referring to Tillerson's comment, if he did that, I guess we'll have to compare IQ tests, and I can tell you who is going to win. Asked about this, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said Trump was making a joke and charged reporters with having no sense of humor. Come on, Sarah, how stupid do you think people are? There's no way to say definitively whether Trump is or isn't a moron, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders definitely thinks you are. Trump wasn't joking in the slightest about being smarter than Tillerson. He's obsessed with having a high IQ, and he talks about it all the time. Sorry, losers and haters, but my IQ is one of the highest, and you all know it. Please don't feel stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. Chris Eliza of CNN quickly collected 22 tweets about it, Trump claiming that his IQ is higher than Chris Matthews, John Stewart, and Rick Perry. Actually, he might be right about that one. But often, as with Tillerson, Trump proposes a competitive IQ test. Like, what's that? It doesn't even exist. For Trump, a low IQ is just like a small penis. Remember, this is a desperately insecure, pathologically narcissistic man whose fragile sense of self 
can't handle being called smaller or weaker or less than other men in any way. Having diminished Trump's intelligence spells the end for Tillerson. He may or may not hang around in his job for a while, but Trump will never forgive him. Coming up in a moment, the Trump kids lying about their edifices and almost getting indicted for it. I'll be back in a moment to talk to Jesse Isinger of ProPublica. But first, a denial from the Secretary of State. Good afternoon. Some have expressed disappointment that I did not categorically deny calling the president a, quote, moron in my press conference yesterday. I'd like to offer a clear denial now, along with a more complete list of other remarks that have been falsely attributed to me. So I never referred to the president as a, quote, moron, end quote. Nor did I refer to him as a, quote, fucking moron, end quote. I never said that he, quote, wouldn't have lasted a day at Exxon, end quote. I never remarked that he, quote, couldn't find Saudi Arabia on a map, even if that map were only a map of Saudi Arabia, end quote. I never expressed frustration that, quote, all items in the Oval Office have been scaled down to two-thirds normal size so that the president never has to feel as though his hands look small, end quote. I never shouted, quote, enough about the damn electoral map, end quote, after 45 minutes of talking about the electoral map during a security briefing. I never referred to the president as, quote, a butthole's butthole, end quote. It is not accurate to say that during a meeting discussing the situation in North Korea, I was heard to whisper, quote, I hope this son of a bitch nukes us because anything is preferable to whatever this is, end quote. I never said, quote, this guy should win the award for best friend of Putin. And that's saying a lot coming from me because I actually have a medal for being friends with Putin. End quote. I never screamed during a tense moment in a meeting with European leaders. Quote, I voted for Kasich. End quote. And finally, I do not doodle crude pictures of the president on notepads and then write arrows pointing to those pictures and label them with the words worse than Buchanan during security briefings. Uh, that's all at this time. No questions. Thank you. Rex Tillerson's clear denial was written and performed by Steve Walting. Joining me in the studio is Jesse Isinger of ProPublica. His new book is The Chicken Shit Club, which is about why the Justice Department fails to prosecute executives. And he's here today to talk to me about his new story, which was done in coordination with WNYC and published in The New Yorker, about Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. 
nearly being charged with fraud by the New York district attorney in connection with misrepresenting condominiums they were trying to sell in the Trump Soho. That's a bit of a mouthful, and we'll get into it in a minute. But Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, just before we get started, I think people are really interested in the these uh, journalistic collaborations yeah. uh, and in how the the interesting ways independent journalism and investigative journalism is now financing itself and, and kind of making what you do work. How did this work with the three organizations? Yes, we call it Operation Guacamole. Or, <laughs> um, oh, that's the polite name for it. Um, ProPublica is all about partnerships fr- and have we have been from the very beginning. ProPublica is a nonprofit. We get funded by foundations and individual donations. Um, and w- from the very beginning, we always tried to give other organizations our end product, and sometimes we work together with them. But we've really realized with the Trump administration that partnerships have kind of taken a different model. Instead of using them to amplify our work, we've decided that there's so much to cover. This is kind of like a DDoS attack on our consciousness. Um, So there's so many subjects to cover that we've decided that we really need to coordinate. And what has happened is Columbia University has started to compile an enormous amount of data, and they reached out to us at ProPublica, and we brought in WNYC and The New Yorker, and they've all been kind of collaborating on a bunch of story ideas. And this was one of the first that I had worked on with Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz at uh, WNYC. And we're just kind of, we both realized that we had pieces of this puzzle um, when we were talking. And so that's the way we came, this particular story came about. It's just interesting to me. People have been so focused on the healthy competition, particularly between the New York Times and the Washington Post in breaking these investigative scoops about Donald Trump. But there's also this unprecedented collaboration going on among news organizations to do big projects together. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the healthy competition uh, idea, but there's also this notion that we don't need to be doing duplicative efforts. And in fact, so early on, we realized that all the, there was a list of names, a bench, uh, there's a beachhead team names of people that the Trump administration was putting into the federal agencies and not disclosing them. Um, the uh, These were kind of installing them to kind of oversee the federal agencies before the appointees were actually um, vetted and uh, um, put in by the Senate. And so we coordinated with the FOIAs to, with all the, every news organization that we would want, uh, we invited everybody. And Bunch came in and said, let's just do this all together and we'll share the out come and then you go find your stories and we'll find our stories but there doesn't need to be every each individual news organization filing its own FOIA. So we've tried to have a much more collaborative effort on these kind of stuff. Okay, let's get into the Trump links. Sure. So simply put, Ivanka and Don Jr. just blatantly lied when they were trying to sell these condos in the unbuilt Trump Tower. Yeah. And they got caught and almost indicted for misrepresenting the financial condition? Was it simply they claimed they'd sold a lot of apartments and hadn't sold them? So let's go back for a second. So in uh, 2007, 
uh, they launch this project to build the Trump Soho. And it's going to be a giant tower in sort of the back end of Soho, the western end of Soho. Yeah, I call it the Trump Holland Tunnel entrance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Trump Holland Tunnel didn't have the same ring to it. Um, <laughs> uh, that was the rejected name. Uh, and uh, happens to be right next to ProPublica, um, our lovely offices. So we they launch this and it is a ill-begotten project from the start. It's a ridiculous idea because they're trying to sell condos, very expensive condos, but it, they're actually hotel rooms and you can only stay in them 120 days a a year. If you own it, you can um, only you stay it, in your you, apartment yes, 120 days a year. And you have enormous carrying costs. And then you were supposed to make that up with the sharing in the income from the hotel room from the rest of the, the time that you weren't staying in them. You couldn't put any of your personal effects in them because they had to be like a hotel oh, So room. you can't even leave your, your suit hanging in the closet. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> um, so it was a big... Uh, this is the Trump project. This is another one for the suckers. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we've come to learn is that the Trump organization was not a good business. They they didn't have good ideas. They didn't run their business as well. And this was one of them. And this was a big, big project for the Trump organization because he was coming off the casino bankruptcies. He hadn't built a big project, real estate project in a very long time where they actually had equity. This was a big equity stake, 18% for the Trump organization. Um, and the most important thing from the Trump organization point of view was that this was Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr.'s coming out party. They were really going to be the public face of this and they were going to manage the property. But it's a dismal failure from the start. They can't sell it. They run into the global financial crisis. And as you say, right at the beginning, they, they're telling the public and buyers a completely different story from the truth. They're lying. They're saying, blatantly saying that the property is selling very well, but they're not just generally kind of selling, is saying that they're specifically saying percentages. We have 31% sold. We have 55% sold. We have 60% sold. None of that was true. Two years later, they signed an affidavit with the state AG, the attorney general's office, saying we've only sold 15%. I mean, if we start locking up uh, real estate developers for, for lying about how great their properties are and how well they're doing, we're going to have a new form of mass incarceration on our hands. <laughs> um, well, uh, maybe that's a form that I could get behind, but, um, <laughs> uh, especially New York real estate. But no, actually, we talked to a lot of real estate people, and there are two things that are different about this. For, so there is something called puffery, uh, legal, uh, a legal concept. And that's saying we sell the best hot dog on Broadway. Um, this puffery is, the, is allowed. Puffery is, a, is allowed. Yeah, you're, allowed is to, uh, you're allowed to lie, um, but you're allowed to lie by saying this is the most luxurious property. Um, you can even say it's hot. It's selling like hotcakes. You've got to get in now. There's a, there's a difference between that and a specific number that has a kind of material effect on the value. You can say, you know, may, you know we're mostly sold. Um, that's a, that might be a benign lie. But huh. to say we're 60% sold, most real estate people avoid that kind of thing. We had a broker on the record saying he never said that. And if they did, they didn't exaggerate the, in the kind of way that they did. 
as much as they did. And that was really one of the crux, key questions for the prosecutors was whether this was a material lie that uh, affected the value of the property. And how much sold were they? How many had they sold when they said 60%? They hadn't sold 15%, which was the key threshold, until two years later when they end up um, filing to get have the project go forward with the state AG. If you don't reach 15%, they would have, all condos need to reach that. Um, it's a consumer protection law in the state of New York. And if you hadn't reached that, they would have had to give their money, the consumer, uh, the, the buyers their money back. So um, that was the that was the threshold that they needed to reach, and they finally reach it in 2010. So just take a pause in the narrative here to talk about the Trump family and the Trump children as liars. It's part of what's amazing when you read the account of this is just how easily they put down in writing things that are grotesquely, factually untrue. I mean— I raise my children not to do this. I'm sure you're raising your children not to do this. Human beings lie. But if I lie, I get a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. Every time I send an email, I read it before I send it to make sure everything (laughs) in it is true. I reflexively, and I think most ordinary human beings, resist lying. It's not that people never lie, but they resist lying. The Trumps seem to have a defective gene or a missing gene where they do not resist lying. They lie so naturally, they're almost unaware of it. And it actually does seem to be congenital. Uh, it is. It's, it's striking. Um, you know, I think the president clearly has a almost sociopathic uh, relationship with the truth. Um, you can tell him things and he will continue to repeat the lie. I had the biggest inauguration. Uh, I had the greatest electoral victory and more, much more consequential things. You know, were the children lying? Now, what is key for the prosecutor, prosecutors is they have to prove intent. So not only were you telling people things that were misleading, but did you know that they were misleading? So what the prosecutors uncovered in this case and why they believe that there was a case here is that they had emails from Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. where they coordinated getting their story straight. They essentially said something like, we didn't see the emails. So they were um, recounted to us, Mm. but um, by multiple sources who had seen them. And, but they said uh, things like, you know, we can't say 60% sold because we said that last week. So we got to say 65% sold this week, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, in one, Donald Trump Jr. says, don't worry, no one's going to find out outside this email chain. So one, they're very stupid to put this stuff in email. And two, you know, they had no compunction about lying, it appeared. At least the prosecutors believed that. And that was what many prosecutors believed, intent, criminal uh, evidence of criminal intent. So there were prosecutors who wanted to bring this case. They wanted to, uh, to impanel a grand jury to indict Ivanka and Donald Jr. Yeah. Cyrus Vance Jr., the, the, the DA, decided not to pursue, decided to drop the case after meeting with Trump's Trump family lawyer, but but Trump senior's lawyer, Mark Kasowitz, and after first having gotten a large campaign contribution, returning the campaign contribution in advance of the meeting, 
but after the meeting, getting an even larger campaign contribution. Is that a f- kind of fair summary that's, of what that, happened? That's exactly right. Um, so what happens is the investigations opened in August 2010, and it proceeds normally, which is to say that there's a line prosecutor, um, a very able guy who's working on it, and his supervisors know he's working on it, and they have a series of meetings with the Trump lawyers, the normal Trump lawyers, over the course of the next year and a half. And these lawyers are no schlubs. They're top criminal defense lawyers in New York City, several of them. And those guys are working through the process and they, and their defense uh, team is putting out the argument that, you know, these, uh, this was just mere puffery. And also, look, the building is built. This isn't swampland in Florida. So, um, one, there weren't, um, lies. Uh, it was just sort of puffery. Two, it wasn't really material. Every, the, the money was there. And three, uh, you know, the property's there. Uh, so why are you doing this? What kind of resources, uh, allocation should this be? Is this really what the prosecutor office should be about? They're not really making headway. In fact, in the, not only does the line prosecutor believe that there's a case, um, it's not just some cowboy here. His supervisors believe in the case. They want to bring indictments, and it goes all the way up to uh, the head of investigations in the DA's office who also believes in the case and wants to bring an indictment. And then Mark Kazowitz comes in. Mark Kazowitz is Trump's personal lawyer for about a decade at that point, had uh, represented him in his divorce with Ivana. Um, Later, people know him from the Russia investigation. Right. Just to to pause there, Trump brought him in at one point as a lawyer in the Russia investigation, and he had one of these crazy flame-out, several-week-long careers in Washington where he wrote these, I think you reported on this, he sent these crazy threatening emails to some guy who wrote to him criticizing him, and then he didn't pursue a security clearance because he's he was reported that he might have a drinking problem. Yeah, that was our story, yeah. And he yeah. just generally seemed like bad news all around. Uh, yeah, unstable, difficult, um, history of drinking um, and alcoholism and rehab um, and uh, inappropriate behavior at work. Once we, when we wrote that story... Uh, just get, to our theme this week. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yes, uh, very apt, actually. Um, when we wrote that story, a guy, um, uh, just a civilian, wrote Kazowitz an email um, saying, I think you should resign. Re- reasonably polite email. And Kazowitz late at night sent a series of emails back to him, one of them saying, watch your back, bitch. Uh, um, <laughs> it should and, be a, no one over the age 40 should be allowed to use the word no, bitch anyway yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> the obviously about. banned <laughs> phrase yes the uncoolness uh, <laughs> factor ju- uh, there if anything should have gotten him canned that was it <laughs> yeah um, so he writes that and uh, and then you know uh, a few days after that it sort of made clear that he's stepping back to uh, spend more time with his you know his money and his family um, and not the being the front man for Trump's defense. But back in 2012, Mark Kazowitz is on the scene. Um, Trump lawyer, he is not a criminal defense lawyer. 
He's dabbled in that, but really he's a corporate lawyer who's done a lot of civil litigation. And what you're Uh, saying there is that you bring, if you're Trump, you bring him in to help with this case because of his political connections to Vance, not because he's good at getting people out of prosecution in this kind of case. Certainly appears that way. Yeah. Um, Well, let's, I mean, so we're, this is now, we're now talking about this. No, this is not a, you know. We're speaking or we're talking. This is not like a, you know, we, we don't have to sort of be quite as legalistic about this. It's certainly Look, I'd be very surprised if Mark Kazowitz didn't give and raise all that money to Cyrus Vance Jr. to try to influence the case. What I don't know is whether he did influence the case. I don't, I don't have enough of an opinion about Cyrus Vance to have a view on whether he was really compromised by that or whether it was a legit decision. What's the reason for thinking in either direction? Well, so um, Kazowitz gives $25,000 while this criminal investigation is going on. It's He's one of the biggest donors to Vance. Now... Keswitz was also interested in support. He supported Vance's opponent in the first DA race where Cyrus Vance is. You want to bribe anybody Um, who could become a a powerful prosecutor. (laughs) He wanted to to own the other bribe. Right. So we know what Keswitz was doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, What's Vance doing? So Vance returns the money. I mean, we, you know, we're, I'm a reporter. I try to lay out the facts. Um, I'm not agnostic to uh, suppositions, but I, I'm trying to be a little bit careful here. Vance returns the money because he's got this standard where, you know, anybody who's got a case in front of me, um, I'm going to return the money or if the donation is flagged. And then he get, has the meeting. Now, is the meeting appropriate? Well, one of Trump's own defense lawyers told us on the record that he considered the meeting to be inappropriate. Paul Grand from Morville Obramowitz, who was uh, part of the Trump Soho defense team, said Vance ultimately makes the right decision, but the way he made the decision was wrong. Um, it, the meeting didn't have an air you'd like. So you don't have to take it from me. You can take it from Trump's own defense team that it's an inappropriate meeting. But, but Vance is like the new head of your chicken shit club here now He because he didn't bring this prosecution either because he was improperly influenced by campaign cash, or he just didn't have the guts to bring a case that he might have a percentage of losing. I mean, right. they hate they hate right. risk. Right? So what he's exactly so it's very you can't get into his head. But um, so Vance um has got this campaign donation. He turns it away. He's got this difficult case, and the question is, uh, you know, he says I make the decision on the merits. What's really important here is that he overruled his prosecutors, not just one prosecutor, but a whole series of prosecutors up to the senior levels who believe that this was a case here. So he overrules it. And, you know, as I say, he's saying that he's doing it on the merits, but these guys are afraid of losing. And he had just um, had to withdraw, pull back from the Dominique Strauss-Kahn sexual assault case, which was a big embarrassment for the office. He's running for re-election. The question is, does he want to take on a tabloid case where Mark Kazowitz is going to make life difficult? He's a highly litigious guy. He's um, They're very aggressive. Um, and, you know, does he want to take that risk on? And my whole book is about prosecutors not wanting to take these kind of risks, being afraid of losing in these complex white-collar cases. And this was the exemplar of this kind of case. And then the thing that's really shocking, I think, is that mere weeks later, after Vance has overruled his prosecutors and made the decision to drop the case, Kazowitz says, I want to get back on the schedule. I want to give you more money and ends up giving Vance more money. And Vance kept it. And Vance kept it. 
Yeah. So just to finish the story in a couple of respects, I mean, I live downtown. Slate's old office was over by the Trump Soho. I want to spit every time I walk by it. <laughs> but uh, does Trump still have an ownership stake in, in this place where you can no. buy a condo and can't leave your toothbrush <laughs> yeah. with you look out at the Holland Tunnel? No, they, the thing went into li- liquidation because uh, um, the, uh, they couldn't carry the costs and the um, debtors took it over and the Trump's equity was wiped out. So why do they still have the Trump name on it? I mean, wouldn't the, in in Lower Manhattan wouldn't they do a little better as a hotel if it didn't say Trump on it? It might actually. It's it's suffering because um you know in red state America Trump businesses are doing okay in blue state America not so good. Uh, the restaurant closed in the Trump Soho. It looks like the Trump Soho is not uh, very well occupied or not occupied with uh, at high rates. So I think their business is suffering. Some buildings have taken off the name. They they may be I you know I don't actually know this whether they're contractually obligated to keep the name on. Yeah. And uh, to end this is one of these counterfactuals but you know do you think history would have been different? I mean if these indictments had actually been brought and Don Jr and Ivanka had been prosecuted. There are two things. One, if they had been indicted. I don't think we would have Donald Trump as president. I don't think that even, you know, notwithstanding his notion that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and become the president, the candidate for the Republican nomination with two indicted children on his marquee Manhattan project of last decade, I just don't think it's sustainable. Then there's a smaller um, counterfactual, which is that they actually, the defense team actually offered a settlement with Vance's office and said, you know what, we'll enter into an agreement where we promise not to lie anymore. Um, Very difficult for us. And not only that, but you can have an outside corporate monitor inside the Trump organization um, making sure that we comply with uh, the rules and, and the law. And so Vance could have had an outside lawyer reporting to him inside the Trump organization during the campaign. <laughs> so it's a, I mean, it's a little like Anthony Weiner, just the thing that fortuitously had a huge consequence, which no one could have really foreseen. Right, right. Of course, the Trumps were high-profile tabloid fodder, but they weren't the president's children. Um, you know, Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. weren't the president's children uh, back then. So to the extent that Vance was avoiding this kind of prosecution, it wasn't because the guy was, you know, destined to become president. I've been speaking to Jesse Isinger of ProPublica. Jesse, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch was written and performed by Steve Waltine. It was available last week to Slate Plus members, but it was so good we had to share it with everybody. To become a member of Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.